This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a carefully constructed castle of clarity in a crazy world. I'm Joe Haldenendy of the award-winning survival website doomandbloom.net, but you can call me Tucson Joe because I'm a highfalutin, rootin' tootin' son of a gun from Arizona. No, I'm not from Arizona. No. If by Arizona... We have been there. Well, if by Arizona, you mean the wild and woolly suburbs of South Florida. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wild. And you are? I'm Nurse Amy. I'm actually Amy Alton, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so tough, she brushes her teeth with our pet hedgehog, Spike. <laughs> when, did we, when did we get Spike? Oh, exactly. Spike. They are cute, though. Spike's in my closet. I wouldn't mind having a Spike. <laughs> it would be cute. On this show, you're going to get all the information you need about baking pecan shortbread. You just made some. I it did. It was delicious, as I a matter did a of cooking fact. show, a cooking show, cooking class. And it was a lot of fun. I'll bet you had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun eating those yes. pecan shortbread cookies, that's for <laughs> sure. But you're also going to get the conventional medical wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared in troubled times. But you must listen to this first. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Or don't if that's how you roll. Yeah. That's how you're rolling. I I think they should. (laughs) What happens in a catastrophe when the hospitals are crowded, there's nowhere else to turn? You know what? When it's least expected, you are elected. So, as medic, that is. Mm -hmm. So, you better get off your butt if you're going to make the cut. Now, before we get started, I just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, greatly expanded and revised, is still hot on the shelves. If you haven't gotten our greatly expanded new book, check it out on Amazon or at store.doomandbloom.net. I just want to be clear. Amazon is only the black and white. If you want a color, which I'm a little backordered, and this is December 21, I will get the next shipment January 3rd of 22, and then we should be good. It's just the holidays have been a little crazy. The printing company is backed up. Who would knew? Who knew the books would be so popular to print this year? Amazing, <laughs> amazing. And the price of paper, wow. Yeah. So anyway, I just want to be clear about that. All right. Well, you know, we survived our first cold wave of the year down here in South Florida. The temperature dived all the way down into the high 50s. Wow. We heard rumors. (laughs) We heard rumors that some places get even colder in winter. So even though they're probably just rumors, we talked last time about general hypothermia. Yes, you did. Now, this time, I think we're going to talk about cold water safety in survival settings. Now, traveling off the grid in the winter oftentimes means you have to traverse a body of water, right? Mm -hmm. It's like hiking across a frozen lake. The combination of poor judgment and cold weather, well, you know what? That is a deadly cocktail. And it can mean the difference between life and death for a survivor or sometimes an entire survival group. Water doesn't have to be terribly cold, believe it or not, to cause hypothermia. Any water that's colder than about, oh, I don't know, 68 degrees Fahrenheit is going to cause significant heat loss and this happens by conduction of heat away from the body because its body surface is in contact with cold temperatures as in the case of someone falling from a boat into frigid water think titanic Uh, water is denser than air it removes heat from the body much faster than being out in the cold air 
You might be interested to know just how long you can expect to survive in cold water. Well, that's going to depend a little bit on the temperature. If someone falls overboard from a boat into frigid water, body temperature drops so quickly that the victim might lose the ability to help themselves due to exhaustion or even lose consciousness well before death occurs. Now, there comes a point where you're just not able to meaningfully function anymore. Right. At 80 degrees or higher, you actually can last a very long time. But between 70 to 80, you start getting down there, you can expect to last maybe 3 to 12 hours before you lose consciousness, become exhausted, but maybe last a good bit longer before you die. At about 60 to 70, it's about 2 to 7 hours before exhaustion and, and more if, uh, to remain alive. At 50 to 60, just 1 to 2 hours before you can no longer help yourself, up to 6 hours before you give up the ghost. 40 to 50, 30 minutes only before losing consciousness, 1 to 3 hours total survival, and at just above freezing to maybe about 40 degrees, just 15 to 30 minutes of function, that's all you got, up to 90 degree minutes of maximum survival. And believe it or not, at lower than 32 degrees, now that would be solid ice, no, not mm -hmm. necessarily, salt water freezes at a lower temperature than fresh, I think at about 29 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, something like that. Well, that's less than 15 minutes of consciousness, 30 to 45 minutes later, you are cold, cold toast frozen yeah. toast so you can theoretically die of hyperthermia even off a tropical course uh, coast if you are in you mean hypothermia did i say hyperthermia maybe it sort of sounds like they sound so much they alike. they do they really do you may theoretically die of cold related exposure oh, there you go. <laughs> off a tropical coast if you're immersed long enough in water temperatures even as high as the 70s now, of course, different factors play a part in survival, such as body build, body size, fat content. Fat is good. Just ask a walrus, right? <laughs> uh, your clothing you have, flotation aids that you might have, and, and your psychological makeup indeed can make a difference. So what can you do to make a bad situation better and gain some time? Well, in the event that you find yourself in cold water, you'll need a strategy that will keep you alive as long as possible. First, let's talk about falling into uh, water when your boat capsizes cold mm -hmm. water mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about falling through the ice during a wilderness hike well to increase your chances of survival in cold water boat mishaps well you one maybe you should wear a life vac life vest right yes a life jacket is a good idea it may not look cool but it can help you stay alive longer by enabling you to float without using a lot of energy and by providing some insulation maybe getting a little bit more of your body out of the water without using a lot of uh energy right the people have been found unconscious indeed but alive floating in a life vest so these jackets by the way sometimes come with these built-in whistles or beacon lights these are the best type so you can signal that you're in distress so sometimes you're just a little blip on the ocean and you know people may not see you especially if there's waves that's right oh right and, and waves of course sure yeah. absolutely and one thing that you should do is by the way keep your clothes on you may feel sort of fettered by the, these clothes, but you need to button or zip up and cover your head if at all possible. You, there's a layer of water between your clothing and your body, and it's slightly warmer than the cold water surrounding, surrounding clothes, you. Right. right, and it'll help insulate you from the cold and remove the, your clothing only when you're safely out of the water. Then you need to do whatever you can to get dry and then warm. Another thing, if possible, I want you to get out of the water partially. At least if you can get out of the water partially, the less body area exposed to the cold, the less heat you're going to lose. Remember, I said you lose heat faster in dense water than in air. So if you can get some of that body 
surface in air as opposed to water, you're going to be better off. Climbing onto a capsized boat or holding onto a floating object is going to increase your chances of survival, even if it only gets a little bit of you out of the water. However, don't use up energy swimming unless you have a promising place to swim to. You should position your body to lessen heat loss. There's something called the heat escape lessening position, H-E-L-P, help, to reduce heat loss. And to achieve the help position, you just float and hold your knees to your chest, and this will help protect your torso, the body core, from heat loss. If you've fallen into cold water with other people, you should huddle together. You keep warm by facing each other in a tight circle and holding on to each other for dear life. Now, what if you're hiking in the wilderness and that snow field turns out to be the icy surface of a lake? Well, ice can handle the weight of an average human if it's about four or more inches thick. This is supposedly safe thickness, but it can be undermined by rapidly flowing water just below the surface, which weakens the underside of the ice. When it comes to walking on ice, safety is never guaranteed. Knowing this, you might still be able to identify especially risky areas in the ice. Is the ice firm at the water's edge? If it's slushy or cracked, it's unlikely to be safe. Slushy ice is deteriorating, just not a reliable walking surface. Color is a clue. The safest ice to be on is clear blue in color due to higher density, although testing for thickness with an ice pick or an auger is a pretty good idea. What if it's light gray or dark black? Now, this signifies melting weak ice even in freezing temperatures. Melting ice can occur even if air temperature is below 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Its weak density just can't hold a load, so stay off. Light gray to dark black, no good. Then there's mottled or slushy ice, like we mentioned. This signifies thawing ice, which may appear thick, but is deteriorating in its center and its base, also unsafe for walking. White to opaque ice, that may be caused by snow thawing and refreezing in layers. That means that there could be porous air pockets in between, and this usually indicates that there is a questionable ability to hold weight, better than the other two, but still very questionable. Then there's blue to clear. That's high density, strong ice, probably the safest ice to be on if it's at least four inches thick. Now, areas of contrasting colors that you may see in the same body of water, that indicates an uneven thickness and, well, as a result, uneven reliability, right? Now, if you run afoul of thin ice and fall through, your body's going to react to the sudden immersion in cold water with an increased pulse rate, blood pressure, and respirations. This is known as the cold shock response, and it's a common cause of death in these situations. Drowning can occur as your body reflexively takes a breath and you hyperventilate when you hit the water. You can may, may be doing this under the water, and that is bad. You can actually drown. Life-threatening cardiac events can also occur due to a, this sudden increased strain on the heart. Just like a split-second strain on the heart can cause damage. Now, although it won't be easy, what you need to do is make every effort to keep calm. You have a few minutes to get out before you succumb to the effects of the cold. Panic is your enemy. First, what you want to do is get your head above the water by bending backward and breathing in. You want to tread water with your legs, get rid of quickly any heavy objects that are weighing you down. Keep your clothing on, though. Remember what I said, air pockets between layers are helping you to stay warmer and also more buoyant. Turn your body in the direction where you came from. You know the ice was strong enough to hold you there, right? Now you want to try to lift up out of the ice using your hands and arms. Having an ice pick or two available will help gain a handhold. And these are good items to have if you know you're traveling on a frozen lake. They, as well as a length of rope maybe, are handy items to have, should be easily reached by anyone who expects to be traveling on ice. 
Uh, keep your arms spread well in front of you and kick with your feet to try to get some forward momentum. At the same time, you're going to try to keep getting more and more of your body out of the water. You want to lift your a leg onto the ice if you can, and then lift again and roll out onto the firmer surface. Just don't try to stand up. You may have, by the way, you may have to attempt this more than once. Once you've rolled out, you keep rolling in the direction that you were walking before you fell through. In other words, don't stand up. Staying flat is going to spread your weight out instead of concentrating it on your feet and causing more pressure on the ice. So then you want to crawl away until you know that you're safe. You want to get out of the wind and start working to get warm immediately. Now, when out in the wild during winter, well, it makes sense to carry a change of clothes in a waterproof bag or other container. This way, you'll always have something dry to wear if you get wet. And everybody in the group should have extra articles of clothing in their pack that could be worn by anyone in the group. So every group member should carry extra articles of clothing, warm packs, um, these uh, shaking packs that uh, skiers use that they're very useful, uh, a reliable fire starter kit and tinder, that's important. Tinder, by the way, may be all around you in a forest, but dry tinder is going to be scarce in a snowstorm, so make sure you keep some in your pack. Improvised options include uh, dryer lint, cotton balls or tampon material coated in some petroleum jelly, sawdust will work. Uh, commercial brands like Instafire, Wetfire, SOL, all-weather cubes, various fat impregnated rope sticks, and others make great fire starter upgrades in harsh conditions great to have. Uh, speaking of groups, be aware that survival rates are higher when traveling together, but not when traveling that close together. If you're walking on a frozen lake, members should proceed in single file, separated by several yards. Being ready for the weather, that's an important factor for success or failure in any survival situation. If you don't take the weather into account, you've made it your enemy, and believe me, it's a formidable one. Being cold water prepared, make sure that a mishap is just a bump on the road, not the end of the road, for your survivors. Let's talk a little bit about wound infections. Now, we know that all injuries carry a risk of infection, right? When the skin is breached, all sorts of microbes can invade and cause damage. Inflammation in soft tissues is known as cellulitis, and it develops when bacteria enters through a crack or break in your skin. Your skin is your armor, right? Fortunately, infections from minor wounds are relatively easy to treat today due to the availability of antibiotics. Without them, any bacteria can become life-threatening as it enters the bloodstream. If germs invade the soft tissues below the superficial layer of the skin, known as the epidermis, they can rapidly infect the main layers of soft tissue below. These include the deep layer of the skin, the dermis, the subcutaneous fat, the muscle layers, and the various blood vessels and nerves. Cellulitis may be easy to deal with in normal times, soft tissue wound infections, but it will be an epidemic in the aftermath of a major disaster. And this is not because it's contagious. It isn't unless you have contact with an open wound, an open wound on yourself or exchange bodily fluids. In survival, you can expect cases of infected wounds simply because of the sheer number of injuries incurred from performing activities of daily survival in less than sanitary conditions. Without antibiotics, infections can spread to lymph nodes and the bloodstream, rapidly becoming life-threatening, and that is a problem. The end result might affect the entire body, referred to as sepsis. In the past, sepsis was usually fatal, and in an uncertain future, that indeed may become the case again. The bacteria that can cause cellulitis are on your skin right now, as a matter of fact. Normal inhabitants of the skin, of the surface of your skin, include Staphylococcus, Group A Streptococcus, others. They do no harm until the skin is broken. 
then they enter deeper tissues where they don't belong. In recent years, a resistant bacteria called MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA, has arisen, which causes cellulitis resistant to the usual antibiotics. Now, as an aside, cellulitis has nothing to do with the dimpling of the skin that some people call cellulite. The suffix itis simply means inflammation, so cellulitis simply means inflammation of, I guess, the cells of the soft tissue. The signs and symptoms of cellulitis have to be recognized as early as possible. It's important for you as medic to know what they look like. They include, well, of course, discomfort in the area of the infection, fever and chills, exhaustion, general ill feeling, muscle aches, heat in the area, and, and the local symptoms are heat in the area of the infection compared to non-affected areas, redness, usually spreading and oftentimes spreading towards the torso, swelling in the area of infection, often appearing sort of shiny and creating a sensation of tightness. And of course, if there's drainage of pus or cloudy fluid that's coming from the area of the infection, you've got an infection. It could be foul smelling, oftentimes foul smelling. Many times you lose hair at the site of the infection. This is a little less common. Um, and some, many people, if it's in a joint or near a joint, there'll be joint stiffness called by, caused by the swelling of the tissue over it. Cellulitis most commonly occurs in extremities, such as, let's say, a leg. In these cases, it's helpful to keep the limb elevated. Other strategies include warm or even cool compresses or soaks to the affected area and the use of ibuprofen or acetaminophen to decrease pain, discomfort, and fever. That's Advil, Tylenol, things like that. Although the body can sometimes resolve cellulitis on its own, Treatment and faster recovery usually involves the use of antibiotics. These can be topical, oral, or intravenous. Topical therapy honestly helps more to prevent infection than to cure it. As most cases of cellulitis and soft tissue wound infections are caused by bacteria, they should improve and disappear during about a 7 to 14 day course of therapy with medications in the penicillin, erythromycin, or cephalosporin, Keflex, families. Amoxicillin and ampicillin are particularly popular. MRSA cellulitis can be treated with other medicines, though, clindamycin and the sulfa drug combination of sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, SMX-TMP, and all of these are available, at least at the present time, in some form of veterinary equivalent. It's important to complete the full course of therapy. Now, here's the adult dosing for you to know. If you have penicillin, amoxicillin, cephalosporin, uh, cephalexin, uh, keflex, ampicillin, probably 500 milligrams a day for an adult orally about three to four times a day, depending on the medicine. Amoxicillin is three times a day. Cephalexin, penicillins are four times a day usually uh, would work. Clindamycin is 150 to 300 milligrams. You take that orally about three times a day for seven to 10 days. Uh, sulfa drugs, you would take 800 milligrams once uh, of SMX and 160 of TMX, trimethoprim, and sulfamethoxazole orally twice a day for seven to 10 days. Now those allergic to penicillins can still take clindamycin or the sulfa drug. Should be noted that not all sources will recommend the same doses. If you read about it, you'll see some variation. The, the frequency may be different. The duration of therapy recommended might be different for especially a particular drug. In resistant infections like MRSA, combination therapies with some of these drugs like sulfa and cephalexin, keflex, together for 7 to 14 days may be necessary. As with all medications, the longer the therapy, the higher the dose, more likelihood that adverse reactions from the drugs may occur. A much more comprehensive discussion of antibiotics is going to be found not just 
in our podcast, of course, but in our book, by the way, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide. You can find that online online at Amazon or at our website at store.doomandbloom.net. But you can also find this information available at, for free at drugs.com or rxlist.com. You might be a little wary of using these kinds of medicines, but in a survival situation, let's face it, antibiotics are going to be precious commodities, even if you have the human versions, they're eventually going to run out. So you want to have something that you're going to be able to stockpile. So these precious commodities should always be monitored by the medic. They should always be under the control of the medic. You should only dispense them when absolutely necessary. We've really misused antibiotics, uh, not only in humans, but in livestock where 80% of antibiotics go. That's part of the reason why we're seeing such an epidemic of antibiotic resistance in this country and indeed throughout the world. Hey, last time Nurse Amy gave us some important info on how to care for sick patients off the grid. Now, if you don't know how to nurse someone back to health, you're going to lose a lot of people. So remember, you're an EMT, you're a physician, you're a nurse, all in one as medic for a survival group. Here's Nurse Amy with part two of nursing care. Hey, Nurse Amy here. I want to maybe finish up, but possibly at least do number two of the nursing care of the sick or injured injured patient. We're continuing with hygiene and sanitation. I wanna make sure that you keep your work environment nice and clean and organized. And that's not just for you, but also for your patient. When people are in a messy room and things are kind of disorganized, it doesn't allow them to focus so much on their well-being. Sometimes that's very distracting. And what you want is the patient just to simply focus on getting themselves better, having a good attitude, and um, really knowing that they're going to get better. So make sure you clean your surfaces uh, every day and keep everything organized and clean. Use a portable fan. You want to make sure that your patient is not too hot or too cold. If you need to open the windows, that's great. Fresh air is wonderful for patients. But if you do have pests outside, insects, flying things, or even animals that might get in, try to use some screening or some sort of protection from that so those don't get in and, again, irritate the patient and distract them from getting better. So you could open the windows if it's nice outside. If you have to keep the windows closed, at least try to use a fan. You want some fresh air circulating around. But again, it's best to have some some new air. And if you can open one side of a window and then open the other room so you get something moving through, that's even better. Wash your hands before providing care. Even if you're wearing gloves, you still need to wash your hands. I know it seems kind of silly, but you never know what part of your hand is going to break through a glove, um, or if you take them off and you hadn't thought about it, that now your hands were dirty because you didn't clean them before putting the gloves on. So wash your hands before touching any part of the patient or also their food or things that they drink. You want to have your hands clean while you're preparing food. Protect yourself, the patient, and visitors from infections and contagious diseases with, everyone knows this now, PPE. Used to be, what is PPE? Everyone knows now. That's personal protection equipment because it has been pounded into our heads for the past two years. This also includes frequent hand washing and glove changes. 
I can't tell you how many times I've gone into, say, a sandwich making place, Subway, yes, and I've watched them finish someone's sandwich and that person does not change their gloves before they start my sandwich. I'm like, okay, uh, could you change your gloves, please? And actually what I should do is turn around and run. And I have to say, I haven't eaten in Subway uh, at least three years, at least, <laughs> probably longer. It has to be um, really a situation of, of desperate, desperate need for food, and that's all that's available. Anyway, only because of the sanitation issue, not because of the food. The food's not terrible, but it's just a, a sanitation issue with me. Because they put the gloves on, and I'm not just talking about Subway right now, but people who wear gloves in the food industry, you will see them, and I've seen waiters do this. They put the gloves on, and they touch handles. They touch refrigerator handles. They touch handles for sodas. They touch the outside of a bunch of things, and then they go and touch your food. Now, in their mind, they're wearing gloves, so that means those gloves must be clean, but every single thing that they've touched has now gotten germs on those gloves. So I cannot stress enough to wash your hands and change your gloves frequently. And if you touch something dirty, you need to take your gloves off, wash your hands, and put a clean pair of gloves on before you touch something else. Just because you have gloves on doesn't mean you're magically clean all the time. That's a problem. I see that in the grocery store too. They're ringing up someone's groceries behind me. The person who put the groceries on the conveyor belt, who knows what they touched. They went and touched a bunch of things in the store, maybe before. And who knows when they last washed their hands. So all of those items are now touched with the patient, with the, the customer's hands. And now the checkout clerk touches all of those items with their gloves. So now they've got the customer's germs, and everyone else who's ever touched those items on their gloves. And then they go and ring my stuff up. I'm like, no, you have to change your gloves because I don't want that customer's germs on my items. Ugh, not that I'm going to suck on a can, but still, it's disgusting. Anyway, change your gloves. If you touch one customer or you touch one patient... Change your gloves before you go to the next person. And if you touch something dirty, change your gloves immediately. Uh, let's move on. Provide a comfortable sleeping cot or a bed. Um, this might not be too easy if we're in a survival situation, but do the best that you can. Again, anything that distracts the patient from uh, being comfortable and focusing just on healing is irritating and you don't want to irritate the patient because that makes them stressed out and stress decreases your healing. You don't want to distract the patient from focusing on healing. Said it again. <laughs> so either keep the patient warm or keep the patient cooled. Don't over cover them up if it's too hot outside. You want to change the linens daily. Again, if possible, we're talking about the best possible care not necessarily what your situation is going to be. Um, patients can sweat. There can be soil buildup. You definitely want to keep the sheets cleaned. If for any reason um, you've done a bed bath, the sheets are going to be wet. You need to change them. And if you're doing some sort of dressing change and for some reason the linens get soiled, 
You definitely want to clean them. Keep the patient clean. Bathe daily. Again, this is the highest standard if you can, even if it's just a sponge bath. Um, Within the book, I do have this nice graphic that shows the procedure and the steps for doing a bed bath. And it's something that most people don't know unless they've gone to some sort of uh, nursing training that you start with the cleanest area and you moved to, quote unquote, the dirtiest. So there's a whole procedure. You start with the head, the eyelids are first, then the face, then the ears, then the neck. You move down. Uh, then you go to the arms, then the hands and the finger, then the chest, then the belly and the belly button. Then you move down into the legs. You do the feet and the toes. You turn the patient over, you do their back, and lastly, you do their groin and anal area. Again, moving from cleanest to dirtiest, you will be washing that washcloth in between. You're going to get fresh water if the water starts to look a little soiled. Um, So you may have to change the water that you're using for this patient uh, two or three times and, you know, not just use the same pan of water the entire time. If you're stuck with one pan of water, Please follow the steps I just went over. Again, you're going to want to change the linens immediately afterward. And while you're bathing, do skin checks. Keep an eye on anything that looks like it's getting red or breaking down. You really want to prevent ulcers. I'm going to talk about position changes that help with that. And you would like to put a skin moisturizer on for dry areas or areas that are touching the, the sheets more often. You know, the hips the buttocks, um, the shoulders, the heels, those special uh, areas. On a daily basis, ask the patient to brush their teeth, again, trying to stay clean and healthy, or assist if needed. Oral hygiene is way overlooked. People forget, you know, oh, I've made the patient clean on the outside. Well, their teeth are really important. And their tongue, make sure you brush the tongue too. So if you keep keep on top of oral hygiene, you will decrease your future issues down the road. If you have a contagious patient, try to maintain a sick room and a separate bathroom space just for the patient so that other people are not intermingling in that air and in that room um, where the patient might have just gone. So if you only have one bathroom, you're going to have to be careful about how often the patient goes in and then how much time is before the next family member goes in. You may have to use some Lysol, some uh, watered down bleach to clean surfaces in between. You may have to have the patient put on a mask before they go into that bathroom if someone else is going to be using it afterwards. The less they breathe out their illness, the less chance that it's going to get to the next person who uses that small space, especially bathrooms are pretty small. Um, And for the sick room, limit the number of people who are going in. If they are going to go in, make sure that they're wearing masks, that they're not only protecting the patient from getting, giving them something else, but that the patient is also wearing a mask during the visitation so that they're not transferring germs. And you can also do the distance thing that we've all been taught Um, not just six feet, but a little bit further if possible. The further, the better. Dispose of human waste safely. Um, There's a whole section we have in our book um, about proper human waste disposal. Um, 
I'm sure we have an article on doomandbloom.net. You can look that up too. It's about digging latrines, safe distances away from where you're living so that you don't have any cross-contamination of any water sources that you're using. Um, And so that's just kept far away. Let's talk about nutrition and hydration. Of course, give plenty of fluids. Fluids help loosen secretions. So if the patient is, you know, kind of congested and junky, the water is important because that allows the phlegm to be able to be brought up and coughed out, which is why people cough, is to bring out that that phlegm. And the looser it is, the easier it is for the patient to get it out. So maintain adequate hydration. People who have lost... Um, blood, who are healing from injuries, all these are really important times to increase and encourage a really good water intake. Um, They may need a sports drink if they've had dehydration. Ginger ale is good on the stomach. Ginger we know is great for irritated stomachs, upset stomachs. You can make a ginger tea, add some raw honey to it, make it taste good. Uh, Honey is also great for the patient, gives them a little bit of extra energy. It's actually loaded with nutrients. I don't think a lot of people realize that. So use your raw honey in your drinks. Uh, Diluted fruit juices. You don't want to really give straight up fruit juices. Sometimes those are irritating on the stomach. And you really want more water versus just sugar. Um, And I mean sugar from the fruit. So Dilute the fruit juices at least half, and then you're increasing the water, but it still tastes good. Documentation. We've talked about charting. You may not be the only person who's caring for the patient. Document how many ounces or cups of fluid that the patient's able to drink. That is called your input or your I, as in I and O. The O is output. Guess what we're measuring? The volume of urination or an approximation. In hospitals, we actually have um, measurement containers. And so either the patient would pee into something that shows you how many ounces, or you would move whatever they urinated in and pour it into a container that would then measure it. So if you can measure the I and O, it gives you an idea of, is the patient drinking enough and are they peeing enough? And what does the urine look like? Document that. Chart any bowel movements, including how the patient describes it, the color, amount, consistency. If no stool is passed, you may have to worry about them having a shutdown there. So you want to feed them good foods, give them some fiber, um, some good fruits are helpful for that, grains, um, oatmeal is wonderful. Uh, If you have Metamucil, that can help move things along if they're slower. Listen for bowel sounds in all four quadrants of the belly daily. You'll hear gurgling. If you listen to your your belly after you've eaten, you'll, you'll hear those bowel sounds. That will give you an idea of whether things are, are going to pass if they've had constipation for a few days or if things are just shut down and you've got to do something more drastic like an enema. Ooh. <laughs> Um, but patients on bed rest tend to get constipated. We walk and move around, which helps to increase digestion and, and move things through our bodies. When you're not moving around, things kind of slow down. So you want to keep an eye on that. Again, you can treat it with extra fluids, uh, fiber, or you know, 
over-the-counter medicines. You want to chart the bowel sounds that they are present. You don't have to say anything unique about them. Um, chart any issues, problems, and any treatments you've given. Again, this is to transfer information of what you saw and what you did to the next person who's caring for the patient. Provide small, frequent, easy to digest, but nutritious meals and snacks to the best of your ability. Add vitamin supplements to help boost the immune system, if you have them, um, and just give them a really, you know, colorful diet. That's what we talk about when we we want to increase the nutrition. You know, you give the apples and the oranges and the bananas, you know, and the the vegetables are different colors, the carrots and the broccoli. So think of different colors. It helps with nutrition. Chart the amount and type of foods eaten plus any supplements you've given. And, of course, chart any medications, including the dosages. Very important so people don't get too much. You can even overdose on Tylenol, folks, and ibuprofen. <laughs> it is very possible. Increase iron-rich and folic acid foods for blood, for patients who have had Blood loss, we want to increase the um, blood cells so you can carry more oxygen in the body. And you can only do that over time. And it's helpful to have iron-rich and folic acid foods to help create these baby blood cells. One tablespoon of blackstrap molasses provides 20% of the daily requirements. That's pretty good. I know my mom used to give me molasses. Uh, didn't taste very good when I was a kid. I don't know how much I've really tried it as an adult. But you know what? Suck it up if it's going to help you get better faster for sure. If an iron supplement's provided, unfortunately, it can cause serious constipation. So definitely keep up the fluids and consider high fiber foods, including lentils, spinach, uh, soybeans, uh, asparagus, avocados, not only are those good with fiber, they are all rich in folic acid, which is something you'll need. Follow the uh, boosting the immunity um, rules that we have. We actually have them in the uh, one of the first sections. It's uh, vitamin C, about 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. You want to take um, a vitamin D. We do 5,000 units a day for immunity. Um, those are really good. Get a B complex. Uh, and then again, eat a, just a really healthy diet. And if you can get some sunshine, that'll help your vitamin D naturally. Also, the, between the hours of 10 and 2 are best for some sunshine. Meals and snacks that are well tolerated by the recovering patients are usually things like Soups, applesauce, plain chicken, um, plain sandwiches, crackers, cottage cheese, mashed potatoes, rice, gelatin, pudding, bananas, um, any kind of a pureed fruit or, um, you know, again, if they're having trouble swallowing or eating, um, even pureed vegetables. You know, you can do carrots. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, kind of think about baby food sort of stuffs. You just want things that are easy, but soups are really wonderful because you can load those up with protein and healthy fats and nice soft vegetables, things that are, are tasty and nutritious. If you have a bedridden patient, 
which is a little bit different from everyone who's recovering. Not everyone has to be stuck in bed. It just depends on what exactly happened to them. Allow the patient to sit in a comfortable chair, again, if possible, or prop them up in bed to help with breathing and prevent pneumonia. It's not good to just lay flat or even just with one pillow for a long period of time. Our, our bodies are just not meant to do that, and it, it can make us sick. So someone who's recovering from, say, a fractured foot, if you let them lay in bed for too long, they can wind up with pneumonia just because they didn't move around. Um, help them do exercises that increases deep breathing. So you get lots of oxygen deep, deep, deep in the lungs. There are contraptions, devices that we use in the hospital that has these balls and you breathe in real deeply and the, and the balls go up or the monitor goes here. And so, but you probably won't have those. You can get a balloon and have them blow the balloon and then take the balloon off their lips and then have them deep, 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 deep breathe so that they're breathing all out and breathing in real deeply. You can do simple things. Um, a short walk that can be tolerated by a patient will help decrease blood clots, another issue with the bedridden patient. Bedridden patient. Keep a patient record. I don't know how many times I have to say this. <laughs> and chart the extent of mobility and times out of bed. So you'd say uh, 10 a.m. Uh, walked 100 feet three times, uh, tolerated well, uh, back in bed. Um, sat in chair uh, two hours at um, 12 o'clock to 2 o'clock. So you want to chart these things so that people know how much the patient's moving and when they did get out of bed. If the patient can only be on bed rest, like strictly bedridden, you need to perform what's called range of motion exercises very gently on every joint of the patient to prevent stiffness. You have seen, I'm sure, if you've had any relatives or folks that are in nursing homes that have been laying in bed with no one really taking care of them, that their fingers and their hands start to get immobile and they have trouble moving, moving their shoulders, moving their elbows, just moving in general because they've been stuck in one position for too long. So you want to move every single joint and we're talking about the knuckles of the fingers the hands, the wrists, the elbows, the shoulders, everything, the neck, the hips, the knees, the feet, the toes, everything. You want to move everything around very slowly, but you want to move it a few times so it doesn't just get stiff. You can also add small weights. If you want to increase the person's strength, maybe they've been in bed for a long time and they need to increase their strength. So then when they do get out of bed, they're not falling around because their muscles are so weak. Uh, the injured area uh, should re receive special attention. In other words, if you've got, say, a broken foot, you're not going to go moving that ankle all around and moving the toes because that that spot is healing. So be careful of <clears throat> where you're actually moving. And chart that you have performed range of motion. Change the bedridden's position, bedridden patient's position during waking hours, at least every two hours. If you can do it more, that's great because you don't want them getting skin irritation and pressure ulcers. Skin irritation can lead to pressure ulcers, also called bed sores. They are nasty. They are 
really, really, really hard to heal. Older patients with fragile skin must be turned slowly and very gently. Again, you're not going to flip this person around like a pancake. You're going to move them very slowly. You're going to use a ton of pillows all around them. I have some pictures of, of how to position patients in the book. But, you know, think about moving them at least, I mean, if you can, every one to one and a half hours while awake, getting them out of bed uh, and not letting them lay in one specific position for too long. Um, the five most common positions are prone lying, which is mostly on the stomach, not face down on the, on the stomach unless they had some injury that they have to be that position. It begins with the upper leg bent slightly and forwards onto the bed while supported with pillows. You're not going to have that knee just sitting on the bed. It's going to have a pillow. The upper arm is on the bed also with a pillow support. The lower arm is behind the patient angled along the torso with the hand resting near the buttocks. I hope you can envision what I'm saying. A pad can be placed under the rib cage to raise the hip further off the bed, thus reducing pressure on the hips with them on the bed. You want to have a little pad between there. Side lying, move the upper hip backwards, but still tilted towards the bed. Bend the upper leg to 45 degrees and bring the upper leg higher off the bed with additional pillow support. The back is supported by pillows. Keep the lower leg bent slightly. You never want to just have those legs straight. The lower arm is now in front of the patient's face and bent at the elbow with the hand towards the head of the bed. In other words, up where the, the patient's head is. The upper arm <clears throat> can lie on the chest and rest on the upper abdomen or placed on a pillow. Lateral lying, this position involves tilting the patient 30 degrees from the mattress, further rotate the back towards the mattress and bring the upper leg behind the lower leg, just a little bit. Support the tilted back, the tilted upper hip, the tilted upper leg, and the upper arm with pillows. Again, lots of pillows. You're going to need lots of support pillows. Even folded blankets will be fine. Uh, supine, supine position is really the back position. It's best performed when the patient is sitting up at 30 degrees. Remember, we talked about not keeping that patient flat on their back unless there's some medical issue that they have to be. They breathe easier sitting up. Provide pillows behind the back and under the knees and lower legs. This is a great way to sleep now if you guys have back issues. Use pillows underneath your legs as you turn. Put a pillow between your two legs when you're on your side and under your knees and lower legs when you're on your back. It relieves strain on the hip, hips and back. You'd be surprised at how much more comfortable it is to raise your legs up with pillows. A pillow at the foot of the bed Touching the bottom of the patient's feet will prevent nerve damage from something called foot drop. In other words, if your toes are pointed down instead of your toes pointed up, you can have a, an issue that could actually permanently keep your foot in that position. It's very bad. So you want your foot straight up, not pointed. The heels um, should be padded also underneath the feet. Uh, in combination with the lower leg and knee pillows. You can actually just pull the pillow down for, far enough to where the, it's underneath the heel of the foot also, as well as the back of the leg and the knee. 
The more the head of the bed is raised above 30 degrees, the more pressure that's actually exerted on the buttocks and the risk for skin issues increases. If you fold that patient up, the more you raise the feet and the more you raise the head, all the pressure goes on the buttocks, if you think about that. Don't want to do that. So you're not raising the bed too much and the legs too much. There's another position, sitting, of course. Have the patient sit in a comfortable chair. Get them out of the bed. Provides another position uh, option. Use a soft cushion underneath the buttocks. Again, they're sitting there. All of the pressure from their entire body is on that area, which is very susceptible to developing pressure sores. Um, If you can tilt the chair back, 30 degrees, it will reduce the pressure on the the buttocks. Provide a small bench, stool, or even books to raise the feet off the floor to allow the legs to be supported at the level of the hips. It decreases also pressure under the thighs. Chart the position change and time in the patient's record. Uh, For a patient who's um, waiting to heal is like waiting for water to boil. It takes time and patience In the meantime, the patient can get bored. Provide some activities for the patient as tolerated, a deck of cards, some crossword puzzles, um, books, books, paperback books. If you, you know, are in a real survival situation, you may not have all the electronics. Kindle's great, but books are going to last a long time. And it'll help keep them occupied, keep their mind off of the woes of being sick or injured And it also helps them stay connected to the outside world because you're going to either discuss the books or play the deck of cards with them or maybe do some puzzles together, you know, participate in their world so that they don't feel alone. Um, Wound care should be performed at least daily, twice as better. It depends on the infection, how weepy and infected is it do you need to take a look at this three times a day you're going to have to make the judgment of what's going on if something is almost healed and looks really clean and and good once a day might be enough chart the look of the wound including any signs of infection the amount odor and color of any discharge keep an eye on it things can change quickly we already talked about vital signs which could be an indication that there's a infection coming but we talked about that in part one um wound care as far as how to do it um we have i'm sure an article on doom and bloom and is detailed in the book and this is nurse amy thank you guys so much for listening i appreciate it and we did complete part two we are finished with nursing care of the sick and injured patient wow that was incredible that is as comprehensive a review of that as i've ever heard thank you you're very welcome. <laughs> you, you are the bomb. Hey, we're adding a new segment to the show where I take questions posed to me in the past, oftentimes on our friend Jack Spirico's Survival Podcast. If you have questions you'd like to hear me address on the podcast, send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. We've talked a lot on this channel about face masks, how to properly fit, place, and remove them, but we haven't talked much about gloves. You'll be using gloves a lot more often than masks when performing routine tasks as a family medic, so you should know a little bit about them. The first disposable medical gloves were made from rubber were introduced around the year 1890 
by Dr. William Stewart Halstead, first chief of surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Now, most gloves used in the medical field are made from latex, nitrile, or vinyl. Let's talk about latex. Latex gloves are made of natural rubber and are thought to have the highest level of comfort and flexibility. They provide good defense against bacteria and viruses, and many surgeons prefer them because of their sensitivity. Then there's nitrile. Nitrile gloves are made of synthetic materials and provide excellent protection against viruses and chemical exposure. They're stretchy, durable, and puncture resistant. Nitrile is the best option for those with latex allergies or who may have patients with latex allergies, an issue becoming more common every year in the United States. Vinyl gloves are made of polyvinyl chloride and they provide good protection against non-hazardous chemical exposure and are pretty cost effective. They tend, however, not to fit as well and are less elastic. Polyvinyl chloride, by the way, is different from polyethylene, the gloves that are most commonly used in the food industry. Another glove more recently introduced is synthetic polyisoprene. These gloves exhibit excellent softness, reasonable tensile strength, and very good barrier performance against viruses and bacteria. These properties make synthetic polyisoprene latex gloves an option for medical surgical gloves. Synthetic polyisoprene won't result in allergic reactions in those people sensitive to latex, but they are a little bit more expensive than even nitrile gloves. Gloves are often separated into exam gloves and surgical gloves. Non-sterile exam gloves are used for evaluating patients, performing blood tests, and disinfecting. They usually come in sizes from small to extra, extra large. Surgical gloves, however, they're used for medical procedures and must meet higher quality standards. They come in more precise sizing than regular exam gloves in order to increase the tactile sensitivity while you're working. If you're the medic, it's helpful to know what size fits you. Surgical gloves are often numbered with the most common sizes ranging from six to eight and a half. Some gloves may have extended wrists for, say, delivering a baby or other work that may require deeper protection. Others have textured fingers to give a better grip. These are usually on the digits and on the palms. Tips for choosing gloves are pretty basic. Find one that fits well and is designed for the intended use. Check each glove for any punctures or tears. Once gloves are on, avoid touching anything but the area that's at issue. In most cases, gloves are meant to be used only once and then safely disposed. Reasons to use a fresh pair include between patients or specific tasks, when gloves become dirty or contaminated, when gloves get torn, when gloves have been used for four consecutive hours or more, after sneezing, coughing, or touching one's hair or face, don't do that, and during dressing changes, in other words, between removing the old contaminated dressing and placing a new clean one. In normal times, the recommendation is that all exam surgical gloves should be discarded after use. In survival scenarios, however, no fresh supplies are going to exist. That means you're eventually going to end up with no gloves whatsoever. Now, is there a way that medical gloves can be disinfected and reused off the grid? Some controversially suggest that in austere settings where no fresh supply of gloves is forthcoming, a 0.5% chlorine solution may be employed to disinfect them so they may be reused. First, you'll wash the gloves with soap and water to remove visible contamination. This may be best performed while still wearing the gloves. You remove the gloves and then add one part 3.5% plain bleach to six parts water and soak for 10 minutes in the resulting solution. For stronger disinfection, use a pressure cooker at 15 PSI for 20 minutes and allow it to dry in the container. Be aware that this may degrade the gloves in a percentage of cases. Some other equally controversial studies suggest chlorhexidine, hibiclens, and povidone iodine, betadine, soaps may work, and even suggest some gloves can be disinfected several times. 
If going from patient to patient, you should wash gloves with soap and water and sanitize them again while still on the hands. If the you-know-what has hit the fan and cleaning and reusing gloves is the only option, always examine each glove carefully after disinfection to determine if there are tears, punctures, or other evidence of deterioration. In any case where contamination is caused by blood or feces, discard the glove, period. When putting on or removing gloves, make every effort to avoid touching the outside of the glove. It should be noted that gloves don't replace proper hand washing. Wash and dry your hands before putting on a pair and whenever you replace them with new ones. This is Joel Nendi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Hey, if you believe in our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family, do us a favor and check out our entire line of quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. And don't forget to get a copy of the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook at Amazon.com. Well, that's all the time we have this week. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.